0: Chapter 7, Part 1 of The Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Packard. The Star of Gettysburg, by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter 6: Jeb Stuart's Ball. Part 1 But Hooker, the new Northern commander, did not yet move. The chief cause was mud. The winter having been very cold in the first half was very rainy in the second half. The numerous brooks and creeks and smaller rivers remained flooded beyond their banks, and the Rappahannock flowed a swollen and mighty stream. Ponds and little lakes stood everywhere. Roads had been destroyed by the marching of mighty masses, and the rolling of thousands of heavy wheels. Horses often sank nearly to the knee when they trod new paths through the muddy fields. There was mud, mud everywhere. Hooker, moreover, was confronted by a long line of earthworks and other entrenchments, extending for twenty miles along the Rappahannock, and defended by the victors of Fredericksburg. After that disastrous day, the northern masses at home were not so eager for a battle. The country realized that it was not well to rush a foe led by men like Lee and Jackson. But Hooker was a brave and confident man. The North, always ready, was sending forward fresh troops, and when he crossed the Rappahannock, as he intended to do, he would have more men and more guns than Burnside had led when he attacked the blazing heights of Fredericksburg. Lincoln and Stanton, worn, too, by the great disasters through their attempts to manage armies in the field from the capital, were giving Hooker a freer hand. On the other hand, the Confederate president and his cabinet suddenly curtailed Lee's plans. A fourth of his veterans under Longstreet were drawn off to meet a flank attack of other northern forces, which seemed to be threatened upon Richmond. Lee was left with only sixty thousand men, to face Hooker's growing odds. It was not any wonder that the spirits of the southern lads sank somewhat. Harry realized more fully every day that it was not sufficient for them merely to beat the northern armies. They must destroy them. The immense patriotism of those who fought for the Union always filled up their depleted ranks and more. And they were getting better generals all the time. "'Hancock and Reynolds, and many other, were rising to fame in the East. "'The Invincibles were posted nearly opposite Falmouth, "'and Harry had many chances to see them. "'On his second visit, the chessboard was mended so perfectly "'that the split was not visible, "'and the two colonels sat down to finish their game. Fifteen minutes later, a dispatch from General Jackson "'to Colonel Leonidas Talbot arrived, telling him to leave at once.' by the railway in the Confederate rear for Richmond. President Davis wished detailed information from him about the fortifications along the coasts of North Carolina and South Carolina, which were now heavily threatened by the enemy. The two colonels had not made a move, but Colonel Leonidas Talbot rose, buttoned every button of his neat tunic, and said in precise tones, Hector, I depart in a half hour you will, of course, have command of the regiment in my absence. And if any young lieutenants should be exceedingly obstreperous in the course of that time, perhaps I can prove to them that they are not as old as they think they are. The Colonel's severity of tone was belied by a faint twinkle in the corner of his eye, and the lads knew that they had nothing to fear, especially as Lieutenant Colonel St. Hilaire was quite as stern and able a guardian as Colonel Talbot. Colonel Talbot departed, good wishes followed him in a shower, and that day a young officer arrived from South Carolina, and took a place in the Invincibles that had been made vacant by death. Harry was still with his friends when this officer arrived, and the tall, slender figure and dark face of the man seemed familiar to him. A little thought recalled where he had first seen that eager gesture, and the manner so intense... THAT IT BETRAYED an EXCESSIVE ENTHUSIASM. BUT WHEN HARRY DID REMEMBER HIM, HE REMEMBERED HIM WELL. HOW DO YOU DO, CAPTAIN BERTRAND? HE SAID. THE MAN WORE A UNIFORM OF A CAPTAIN. BERTRAND STARED AT HARRY, AND THEN HE GRADUALLY REMEMBERED. IT WAS NOT STRANGE THAT HE WAS PUZZLED AT FIRST, AS IN THE TWO YEARS THAT HAD PASSED SINCE BERTRAND WAS IN COLONEL KENTON'S HOUSE AT PENDLETON, HARRY HAD GROWN MUCH LARGER AND MORE POWERFUL and was deeply tanned by all kinds of weather. But when he did recall him, his greeting was full of warmth. "'Ah, I know!' he exclaimed. "'It is Harry Kenton, the son of Colonel George Kenton, and we held that meeting in your father's house on the eve of the war, and then we went up to Frankfurt, and we did not take Kentucky out of the Union.' "'No, we didn't,' said Harry with a laugh. "'Captain Bertrand?' "'Lieutenant St. Clair and Lieutenant Langdon. "'But Bertrand had known both of them in Charleston, "'and he shook their hands with zeal and warmth, "'showing what Harry thought, "'as he had thought from the first time he saw him, in excess of manner. "'We've a fine, dry place under this tree,' said St. Clair. "'Let's sit down and talk. "'You're the new captain in our regiment, are you not?' "'Yes,' replied Bertrand. "'I've just come from Richmond.' where I met my chief, that valiant man, Colonel Leonidas Talbot. I have been serving mostly on the coast of the Carolinas, and when I asked to be sent to the larger theater of war, they very naturally assigned me to one of my own home regiments. Alas, there is plenty of room for me, and many more in the ranks of the Invincibles. We have been well shot up, that's true, said Langdon, whom nothing could depress more than a minute. But we put more than a million Yankees out of the running, "'How are your knights of the Golden Circle getting along?' asked Harry. Bertrand flushed a little, despite his swarthiness. "'Not very well, I fear,' he replied. "'It's taken us longer to conquer the Yankees than we thought. "'I don't see that we've begun to conquer them as a people, or a section,' said St. Clair, "'who was always frank and direct. "'We've won big victories. "'But just look, you'll see them across the river there, "'stronger and more numerous than ever. "'And that, too,' on the heels of that big defeat they sustained at Fredericksburg. And if you'll pardon me, Captain, I don't believe much in the great slave empire that the Knights of the Golden Circle planned. Bertrand's black eyes flashed. And why not? he asked sharply. To take Cuba and Mexico would mean other wars, and if we took them, we'd have other kinds of people whom we'd have to hold in check with arms, a fine mess we'd make of it and we haven't any right to jump on Cuba and Mexico anyway. I got a far better plan. And what is that? asked Bertrand, with an increasing sharpness in his manner. The North means to free our slaves. We'll defeat the North, and show her that she can't. Then we'll free them ourselves. Free them ourselves? exclaimed Bertrand. What are we fighting for but for the right to hold our own property? I didn't understand it exactly that way it seems to me that we went to war to defend the right of a state to go out of the union when it pleases i tell you this war is being fought to establish our title to our own it's all right so we fight well said harry who saw bertrand's rising colour and who believed him to be tinged with fanaticism it's all that can be asked of us after happy tom sleeps in the white house with his boots on and he says what he's going to do, we can decide, each according to his own taste, what he was fighting for. I've known all the time what was in my mind, said Bertrand emphatically. Of course, the extension of the new republic toward the north will be cut off by the Yankees. Then its expansion must be southward, and that means in time the absorption of Mexico, all the West Indies, and probably Central America. Sinclair was about to retort, but Harry gave him a warning look, and he contented himself with rolling into a little easier position. Harry foresaw that these two South Carolinians would not be friends, and in any event he hated fruitless political discussions. Bertrand excused himself presently and went away. Arthur, said Harry, I wouldn't argue with him. He's a captain in the Invincibles now, and you're a lieutenant. It's in his power to make trouble for you. "'You're not appealing to any emotion in me that might bear the name of fear, are you, Harry?' "'You know I'm not. Why argue with a man who has fire on the brain? "'Although he's older than you, Arthur, he hasn't got a good rein on his temper.' "'You can't resist flattery like that, can you, Arthur? "'I know I couldn't,' said Happy Tom, grinning his genial grin. "'St. Clair's face relaxed. "'You're right, fellows. We oughtn't be quarreling among ourselves.' when there are so many Yankees to fight. Mail forwarded from Richmond was distributed in the camp the next day, and Harry was in the multitude gathered around the officers distributing it. The delivery of the mail was always a stirring event in either army, and as the war rolled on, steadily increased in importance. There were men in this very group who had not heard from home since they left it two years before, and there were letters for men who would never receive them. The letters were being given out at various points. But where Harry stood, a major was calling them in a loud, clear voice. John Escomb, Fields Brigade. Escomb, deeply tanned and twenty-two, ran forward and received a thick letter addressed in a woman's handwriting, that of his mother, and amid cheering at his luck, disappeared in the crowd. Thomas Anderson, Gregg's Brigade. Girls' handwriting, too. Lucky boy, Tom. Hey, Tom, open it and show it to us. Maybe her picture's inside it. I'll bet she's got red hair. But Tom fled, blushing, and opened his letter when he was at a safe distance. Carlton Ives, Thomas Brigade. In hospital, Major, but I'll take the letter to him. He's in my company. Stephen Brayton, Lane's Brigade. There was silence for a moment, and then someone said, dead at antietam sir the major put the letter on one side and called thomas langdon the invincibles langdon darted forward and seized his letter it's from my father he said and glanced at the superscription although it was half hidden from him by a mist that suddenly appeared before his eyes here tom stand behind us and read it said harry who was waiting in an anxiety that was Positively painful for a letter to himself. Henry Lawton, Pender's Brigade, called the Major. This is from a girl, too, and there's a photograph inside. I can feel it. Wish I could get such a letter myself, Henry. Lawton, his letter in hand, retreated rapidly amid envious cheers. Charles Carson, Lane's Brigade. Dead at Fredericksburg, sir. I helped to bury him. Thomas Carstairs, Fields Brigade. Killed at 2nd Manassas, sir. Richard Graves, Archers Brigade. Died in hospital after Antietam, sir. David Moulton, Fields Brigade. Killed nearly a year ago in the Valley, sir. William Fitzpatrick, Lane's Brigade. Taken prisoner at Antietam. Not yet exchanged, sir. Herbert Jones, Pender's Brigade. Killed at South Mountain, sir. Harry felt a little shiver. A list of those who would never receive their letters was growing too long. But this delivery of the mail seemed to run in streaks. Presently, it found a streak of the living. It was a great mail that came that day, the largest the army had yet received, but the crowd, hungry for a word from home, did not seem to diminish. The ring continually pressed a little closer. St. Clair received two letters, and a long while afterwards there was one for Dalton, who, however, had not been so long a time without news, as the battlefield was in his own state, Virginia. Harry watched them with an envy that he tried to keep down, and after a while he saw that the heap of letters was becoming very small. His anxiety became so painful that it was hard to bear. He knew that his father had been in the thick of a great battle at Stone River, but not a word from him or about him had ever come. No news in this case was bad news. If he were alive, he would certainly write, and there was Confederate communication between eastern Tennessee and northern Virginia. It was thus with a sinking heart that he watched the diminishing heap. Many of the disappointed ones had already gone away, hopeless, and Harry felt like following them, But the Major picked up a thick letter in a coarse brown envelope, and called, Lieutenant Henry Kenton, Staff of Lieutenant General Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Harry sprang forward and seized his letter. Then he found a place behind a big tree, where St. Clair, Langdon, and Dalton were reading theirs, and opened it. He had already seen that the address was in his father's handwriting, and he believed that he was alive. The letter must have been written after the Battle of Stone River, or it would have arrived earlier. He took a hurried glance at the date, and saw that it was near to the close of January, at least three weeks after the battle. Then all apprehension was gone. It was a long letter, dated from headquarters near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Colonel Kenton had just heard of the Battle of Fredericksburg, and he was rejoicing at the glorious victory. He hoped and believed that his son had passed through it safely the southern army had not been so successful in the west as in the east but he believed that they had met tougher antagonists there the men of the west and northwest used to all kinds of hardships and alas their own kentuckians at both perryville and stone river they had routed the antagonists who met them first but they had been stopped by their own brethren harry smiled and murmured to himself he can never put down dad's state pride With him, the Kentuckians are always first. He had a good deal of his state pride himself, although in a less accentuated form, and, after the moment's thought, he went on. The colonel was looking for a letter from his son. Harry had written twice since Fredericksburg, and he knew now that the letters would arrive safely. He himself had been wounded slightly in a skirmish just after Stone River, but he was now entirely well. The southern forces were gathering, and General Bragg, would have a great army with which they were confident in winning a victory, like that of the second Manassas, or Fredericksburg. He was glad that his son was on the staff of so great a genius as General Jackson, and that he was also under the command of that other great genius, Lee. Harry stopped reading for a moment or two, and smiled with satisfaction. The impression that Lee and Jackson had made upon the South was as great in the West as in the East. The hero-worship which the fiery and impressionable South gives in such unstinted measure to these two men had begun already. Harry was glad that his father recognized the great Virginians so fully, men who allied with genius, temperate, and lofty lives. He resumed his reading, but the remainder of the letter was occupied with personal details. The colonel closed with some good advice to his son about caring for himself on the march and in camp, drawn from his own experience both in the Mexican War and in the present strife. Harry read his letter three times. Then he folded it carefully and put it inside the pocket of his tunic. "'Is it good news, Harry?' asked Happy Tom, who had already finished his own letter. "'Yes, it's cheerful.' "'So's mine. I'm glad to hear your father's all right.' Mine didn't go to the war. I wish you could meet my father, Harry. I get my cheerful disposition and my good manners from him. When the war was about to begin, and I went over to Charleston in about the most splendid uniform that it was ever created, he said, You fellows will get licked like thunder, and maybe you'll deserve it. But as for you, you'll probably get a part of your full head shot off. But it's so thick and hard it will be a benefit to you to lose some of it and have the rest opened up. But remember, Tom, whenever you do come back, no matter how many legs and arms and portions of your head you've left behind, there'll be a welcome in the old house for you. You're the fatted calf, but you're sure to come back a lot leaner and maybe with more sense. He certainly talked to you straight. So he did, Harry. But those words were not nearly so rough as they sound. Because when I came away, I saw tears in his eyes. Father's a smart man a money maker as good as the Yankees themselves. He's got Sea Island cotton and warehouses in more than one place along the coast, and he writes to me that he's already selling it to the blockade runners for unmentionable prices in British and French gold. Harry, if your fortunes are broken up by the war, you and your father will have to come down and share with us. Thanks for the invitation, Tom. But from what you say about your father, we'd be about as welcome as a bear in a kitchen. "'Don't you believe it. You come.' "'Arthur, what are you here?' asked Harry. "'My people are well, and they're sending me lots of things. "'My mother has put in the pack a brand-new uniform. "'She sewed on the gold lace herself. "'I hope the next battle won't be fought before it gets here.' "'Impossible,' said Harry gravely. "'General Hooker is too polite a man to push us "'before Lieutenant St. Clair receives his new clothes.' "'I hope so,' said St. Clair, seriously.' The new uniform, in fact, came a few days later, and as it even exceeded its promise, St. Clair was thoroughly happy. Harry also received a second letter from Colonel Kenton, telling of the receipt of his own, and wishing him equally good fortune in the new battle which they in the West heard was impending in the East. Harry believed that they would surely close with Hooker soon. They had been along the Rappahannock for many weeks now, and the winter of cold rain had not yet broken up. But Spring could not be far away. Meanwhile, he was drawn closer than ever to Jackson, his great commander, and was almost constantly in his service. It was, perhaps, the difference in their nature that made the hero-worship in the boy so strong. Jackson was quiet, reserved, and deeply religious. Harry was impulsive, physically restless, and now and then talkative, as the young almost always are. Jackson's impassive face, and the few words, but always to the point that he spoke, impressed him. In his opinion now, Stonewall Jackson could do no wrong, nor make any mistake in judgment. The months had not been unpleasant. The Southern Army was recuperating from great battles, and, used to farm and forest life, the soldiers easily made shelter for themselves against the rain and mud. The southern pickets along the river also established good relations with the pickets on the other side. Why not? They were of the same blood and the same nation. There was no battle now, and what was the use of sneaking around like an Indian, trying to kill somebody who was doing you no harm? That was assassination, not war. The officers winked at this borderline friendship. The Yankee picket in a boat near the left shore could not a newspaper into a tight wad and throw it to the Johnny Reb picket on the other boat, near the right bank. And there were strong-armed Johnny Reb pickets who can throw a hunk of chewing tobacco all the way to the Yankee side. Already they were sowing the seeds of a good will, which should follow a mighty war. Harry often went to the bank on the warmer and sunny days, and leisurely watched the men on the other side. St. Clair, Langdon, and Dalton usually joined him, if their duties allowed. It was well into March. A bright and warm day, when they sat on a little hillock and gazed at four of the men in blue, who were fishing from a small boat near their shore. St. Clair was the last to join the little party. And when he came, he was greeted with a yell by the men on the left bank. One of them put up his hands, trumpet-shaped, to his mouth, and called, Is that President Davis who just joined you? No, replied Harry, using his hands in like fashion. "'What makes you think so?' "'Because Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like him. "'I've got to put my hands over my eyes "'to protect them from the blaze of that uniform.' "'St. Clair, who wore his new uniform, "'which was modeled somewhat after the brilliant fashion of Stuart's, "'smiled with content. "'He was making a great hit. "'You can do all the talking, Harry,' he said. "'As I told you, he isn't President Davis,' Harry called. "'But he's sure.' when he's old enough to be one of his successors. Bet you, Dollar Johnny Reb, that President Davis has no successor. Take you, Yank, and I'll collect that bet from you when I ride down Pennsylvania Avenue in my Confederate uniform at the head of the Army in Northern Virginia. Oh, no, you won't. You'll pay it to me before the State House in Richmond, with the Army of the Potomac looking on, and the stars and stripes waving gracefully over your head. "'Both of you are betting on things too far off,' said Langdon, "'who could keep out of the conversation no longer. "'I'll bet you two dollars that not one of these four men of the boat "'catches a fish inside of ten minutes. "'In Confederate bills or in money?' was called back. "'Roars of laughter from both sides of the Rappahannock "'crossed one another above the middle of the stream. "'What's this?' exclaimed a sharp voice behind the four. "'Conversation with the enemy?' It's against the rules of war. They looked around and saw Bertrand, his face flushed and his eyes sparkling. Harry leaned back lazily, but St. Clair spoke up quickly. We've been having conversations off and on with the enemy for two years, he said. We've had some mighty hot talks with bullets and cannonballs, and some not-so-hot with words. Just now we were having one of the class labeled Not-So-Hot. What's the matter with you, Johnnies? was called across you broken off the talk just when it was getting interesting. "'Are you going to back out on that bet? "'We thought you had better manners. "'We know you have.' "'You're right, we have,' said St. Clair, shouting across the stream. "'But we've been interrupted by a man who hasn't.' "'Oh, is that so?' was called back. "'If you've troubles on your own, we won't interfere. "'We'll just look on.' Bertrand was pallid with rage. I'm a captain in the Invincibles, Mr. St. Clair, he said. And you're only a lieutenant. You'll return to your regiment at once and prepare a written apology to me with the words you've just used to those Yankees. Oh, no, I won't do either, drawed St. Clair purposely. It is true that a captain outranks a lieutenant, but you're a company commander and I'm a staff officer. I take no orders from you. Nevertheless, you have insulted me, and there is another and perhaps better way to settle it. He significantly touched the hilt of his sword. Oh, if you mean a duel, that suits me well enough, said St. Clair, who was an expert with the sword. Early tomorrow morning, in the woods, back at this point. Suits me. Your seconds? Then Harry jumped to his feet, in a mighty wrath and indignation. There won't be any duel. And there won't be any seconds, he exclaimed. Why not? asked Bertrand, his face livid. Because I won't allow it. How can you help it? It's a piece of Thunderation foolishness. Two good southern soldiers trying to kill each other when they've swore to use all their efforts killing Yankees. It's a breach of faith and its silliness on its own account. You've received the hospitality of my father's house, Captain Bertrand, and he's helped you and been kind to you elsewhere. You owe me enough to at least listen to me. Unless I get the promise of you two to drop this matter, I swear I'll go straight to General Jackson and tell all about it. He'll save you the trouble of shooting each other. He'll have you two shot together. You needn't frown neither of you. It's not much fun breaking the rules of a Presbyterian elder who was also one of the greatest generals the world has ever seen. You're talking sound sense, Harry, said Happy Tom, an unexpected ally. I've several objections to this duel myself. We'll need both of these men for the great battle with Hooker. Arthur would be sure to wear his new uniform, and a bullet hole through it would go far towards spoiling it. "'Besides, there's nothing to fight about. "'And if they did fight, "'I'd hate to see the survivor standing up "'before one of old Jack's firing squads "'and then falling before it. "'You go to General Jackson, Harry, "'and I'll go along with you, "'seconding every word you say. "'Shut up, Arthur, "'and if you open your mouth again, "'I'll roll you in your new uniform in the mud down there, "'and you know I can do it.' "'But such conduct would be unparalleled,' "'said Bertrand.' "'I don't care a whoop it if it is,' said Harry, "'who had been taught by his father to look upon a duel as a wicked proceeding. "'General Jackson wouldn't tolerate such a thing, "'and in his command what he says is the Ten Commandments. "'Isn't that so, Dalton?' "'Undoubtedly, and you can depend upon me as a third for you and Happy Tom.' "'Now, Captain,' continued Harry soothingly, "'just forget this, won't you? "'Both of you are from South Carolina, and you ought to be good friends.' "'So far as I'm concerned, it's finished,' said St. Clair. "'But Bertrand turned upon his heel without a word and walked away. "'Hey there, you Johnnies!' came a loud hail from the other side of the river. "'What's the matter with your friend who's just gone away? "'I was watching with glasses. He didn't look happy. "'He had a nightmare, and he hasn't fully recovered from it yet.' "'There was a sudden tremendous burst of cheering behind them. "'On your feet, boys!' exclaimed Happy Tom, glancing back. Here comes old Jack on one of his tours of inspection. End of chapter seven, part one. Recording by Michael Packard.